Tonight's New Testament reading is from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. It can be found on page 4 in your bulletins. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, let's pray. God, you know that we are too desperate to play church. We're too desperate to play as if we're perfect people. Uh, We're too desperate to um, play as if we're righteous people. But we are your people. And we pray that you would come right now and make yourself known. And we ask it in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, I know Mike uh, told you all last week uh, we hit a turning point in our study of this letter to the book of Romans last week in chapter 12 after five months of doing theology, 11 chapters of doing deep theology, the letter now turns to apply it to all these different areas of life, relationships, the state government, we can go on and on. And by that, there's two things right off the bat that it teaches us, and it's distinctive to the Christian faith. One is that from Christianity's point of view, all theology is to bear on relationship. All theology is to finally come to bear on our relationships. If you know the two great commandments, love God with everything you've got and your neighbor is yourself, that makes sense. And so if you're someone that likes to read theology more than you live theology, if you're someone that likes to debate theology more than you like to love the person that you're debating with, if words like justification and sanctification just sort of float up there and they never, never make their way into your relationship with your roommate or your marriage or with your mother and father, you're missing something. Because all theology bears on relationship. We start with this you know, word in verse 12 where it says, or chapter 12 where it says, therefore. All that theology for 11 verses that Paul was going for, what does he call it? Mercy. 
He says, in view of God's mercy. There's another thing we learn about this too, a second thing, and that's motive. There's lots of reasons you can try to change. Uh, we've got, you know, lots and lots of reasons. Maybe it's to get praise from people. Maybe it's because we want to feel better than other people. Maybe it's because we fear losing a relationship. We can have lots of motives. Our city is filled with offices with people working, sidewalks where people are exercising, NGOs where people are advocating for lots of different motives. What motives are they? Now, the Bible says that our motives are like gas or oil in a car tank. You know, if you know anything about diesel fuel or regular fuel, you know, you know, you might mistakenly put some diesel fuel in your car, and that's not a good thing. But if you put regular gas in a diesel tank, you're really in trouble because diesel fuel lubricates. It helps the thing go, whereas gas does the opposite. It reduces that and causes the machinery to come, you know, right up against each other and self-destruct. The motive, if you put the wrong motive in your life, maybe it's fear of men, praise of men, envy, greed, if you put the wrong motive into your life, it'll wear you down and destroy you. The motive that God has called us to run off of is mercy. That's the high-octane stuff. That's the premium. The mercy of God will get you to do things that fear and shame could never get you to do. It has a power that none of those other things can run in our lives. But why does God show us mercy? There's even something deeper that we learn now. He shows us mercy because he loves us. The book of Ephesians says this, because God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together when we were dead, spiritually. God's love is this kind of love where, you know, throughout all eternity, you and I will be asking God, but why? Why did you love me this way? Why did you love me unconditionally? Why did you pour mercy on me when I screwed up over and over again? Why did you do it? And he's just going to look back at you and say, Cuz, I loved you because I loved you. That is, you know, when someone loves you unconditionally, it can really mess you up. If you're used to running off the old oil, you're like, you know, does not compute. I don't get this. But it will move you in ways, again, that fear and guilt never can. Now, the thing about love is this. Uh, when sin entered the world and entered our lives, the first thing it began to do is mess with our love. It weakened our love. It toxified our love. It distorted our love. And so you and I, when we hear a passage like we just heard, I think our natural inclination is to go, come on, really? outdo one another. This sounds like idealistic stuff. This is exaggerating stuff. But it's not. It's the way God loves. And sin has so damaged our understanding of love, we look at that and go, that's impossible. You're right, it's impossible. I will regularly say that Christian love is not natural. It's supernatural. It's God enabling us to love in a way that we couldn't love by ourselves. 
And so mercy leads us that way. And that's what I want to talk about in the time we have here. The way that love influences love within the family of God and love even with those that hate us, those that are against us, enemies. So let's look at those two things together. Now the first thing that uh, Paul says is that the mercy of God will produce a love that is genuine, a love that is for real. Those of you familiar with the music of Drake know he has a song called Fake Love. And the lyric says, I've got fake people showing me fake love straight up to my face. That's every day. I mean, that is really every day. I mean, that's just something that you sit there and go, you experience it. Y'all didn't realize I was such a Drake fan, did you? Because, you, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of things about me you don't know, okay? Let's just leave it there. But, um, you know, every day love will disguise itself. It disguises itself as lust. It disguises itself as control. It disguises itself as jealousy. It disguises itself, especially in the church, as niceness. You know, niceness is not a spiritual fruit. Niceness is something we do to get people to love us. And love will also do something where we will create the impression that we care about people more than we really do. You know, where we see them and go, hey man, it'd be great to get together. Then they actually hold you to it. And they text you and you're like, ah. Where you say, hey man, yeah, come, visit, you know, come stay with us sometime. And they come stay and your first thought is, so how long are you staying? Right? Is it going to be longer than three days? You know, we, we love to create the impression that we're more loving than we really are. So this is what love does. It tries to be not genuine. But when the mercy of God gets in you, your love becomes more honest, and it becomes bold. I put a quote in the, uh, in the first part of your bulletin from a book by Dan Allender. And he says, it's a bold love. Bold love is courageously setting aside our personal agenda to move humbly into the world of others with their well-being in view. Now listen to this willing to risk further pain in our souls in order to be an aroma of life to some and an aroma of death to others. It's that sort of true love that the Bible is talking about here. Uh, to this kind of love, the apostle says that we should be devoted. The apostle Paul says that we actually should love with Philadelphia. You Philly people will probably go, yeah, that's what I've been saying all along. You know. But what Philadelphia is the city of... Brotherly love, that's the Greek word there. Philadelphia. He's saying, I want you to love with brotherly love. And so what he's doing, think about, you know, your family. Think about your family, whether it's your immediate or extended family. As much as your family will drive you crazy, as much as you want to give up on them, as much as you want to say, no, you don't. Why? Because family's family. Right? Family's one of those things where you just sort of, unless it's, I mean, egregious, you hang in there and you keep loving year after year after year after year. And Paul is actually saying that we're supposed to love that way in this family when he says, devote yourself in brotherly love. I think as Christians, this is very convicting because I think among Christians, we're plagued with the belief that we can just leave and start over again. You know, a relationship is tough, we just go to a different church. 
you know, we have a difficult time and we just say to someone, listen, you know, God knows my heart and we wander off. It's not family of God sort of love. The family of God love is that I'm going to be up in your mix and in your face no matter what. I'm going to love you in that sort of way. I'm going to stay with you. So mercy results in real love. Also pure love. He says, be horrified by what is evil. Be glued to what is good. People that have experienced being delivered from horrible stuff and shown mercy become fighters for justice and righteousness and love because they know what it's like. And by Paul mentioning the standard of good and evil here, he is asserting something radical in our day and age, and that is you can actually measure love against a standard. Now, in modern Western culture, in American culture, we measure love primarily by individual desire and individual happiness. And so basically, you know, you can't really talk to me about my standard because my standard is within me. It's not corporate. But that's really, you know, self-centeredness. That's what that is. And so Paul is saying, no, there's a standard outside of ourselves. And it's a good thing because love is that most vulnerable place we are going to be most tempted to compromise. It's love in our relationships. I've been watching this series called Bloodline on Netflix. Anybody watch Bloodline here? I'm just curious. Good, a few of you. I just found out today they're not renewing it. It's like three seasons and it's over. You know, so now I'm like, should I give up on the show? I can't give up on the show, you know, because my sermon, right? I have to stay committed to it. But anyway, it really is a great, powerful story about a family, a broken family, a family that's undergone trauma and tragedy like our families. And the older brother is like the trigger point. He, he's the screw-up. You know, he just, he, he's the one that suffered the most, but the wonder that just you know, keeps messing up and asking for this and asking for that, and, and his mother cannot say no. And what she says is, I just want Danny to be happy. I just want him to be happy. It's in the people that we love the most, we are most tempted not to have pure love, but to have distorted love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. It's this idea that, you know, if my love is pure for you, it's going to have some teeth to it. The mercy that calls us back from self-destruction may be severe mercy. It may be difficult mercy. But the mercy of God also produces a love that is selfless. I love this translation, outdo one another, showing honor. Now, we try to outdo one another all the time, right? Outdo one another with a better story, a funnier joke, in our careers, with who we know, with who we get to date, you know, how much we can drink, whatever it be. We seek to outdo in all different ways. This is part of our human nature. But here he's saying mercy comes in, and mercy does this. When we've lost all honor, God comes in and covers our head with honor. You know, the, the gospel teaches that Jesus Christ, the most honored being in existence, 
came and became ashamed and cursed for you and I. He lost all honor before the face of the world. And he did it so you and I might be crowned with steadfast love. That the prophecy of Isaiah that says, because you were honored and precious in my sight, I give men in exchange for you. This is what God would give for you and I. And how do you do something like that? You can only do it if you are most secure in your honor before God. One of my favorite stories in the um, Old Testament is the story of Jonathan and King David. Jonathan is the, is the son of King Saul. He's sort of like uh, the Sam in the Lord of the Rings. You know, he's like, Jonathan's like the, like the moral hero of the story. And what happens is, you know, Jonathan, being the son of the king, is in line to be the next king, but he knows that David is God's anointed. And we have this amazing scene where he gives over his royal regalia, his sword, and his belt and his things to David to say, I give these to you. And then Jonathan devotes his life, at the risk of his own life, to lifting up the anointed. He outdoes David in honor. At the end of their lives, David says, you know, I, I've had great love for my wife. Your love as a friend has gone beyond it. Because it's the love of Christ. The friend that gives his life for a brother. When the gospel works with you and I, that way we can begin to say, you know something? And it takes so much faith. I don't want to make it easy. But when our friend gets the promotion, or get, they, they get the engagement ring, we sit there and go, I'm happy for you because I love you. I'm glad you have this honor. If your honor is only attached to this world, you'll never be able to do that, right? Because it's always there's only so much pie that go around. But if your honor is rooted with God in heaven, you have a supernatural freedom to lift people up that you and I might decrease, that others might increase. And we also trust that God will promote us. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. He does lift up the lowly. He will lift you up. This is what he does. Fourthly, mercy produces a love that endures. Rejoice in hope, patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. It's tempting at this verse and a few of these others to kind of extract them and think, well, this is just about my own spiritual life. But my understanding is everything he's talking about here is about relationships. So when he's saying rejoice in hope and patient in tribulation, he's talking about in hard relationships. Because relationships will be the thing that will break you more than anything else. You know, your career failures or life failures might get you down, but if someone you love and trust, if that goes south, that'll bring you to a, a point of wanting to give up like nothing else. And Paul knows this, and he says, you know, you and I must learn to rejoice in hope, and the only way you can do it is if you have God's hope for someone, not your own. You know, you have, to, you have to have this belief that God has an arm long enough to save that I don't have. Meg and I know a, a woman, she's a godly woman, <clears throat> and for years her adult daughter has just gone through so many um, self-destructive things. Uh, for years it's been this way. I mean, whether it's one job loss after another, and then it's several years into this addiction, then it's another several years into this addiction. 
until a year and a half ago, they were there in the ER in the hospital room, and her daughter is literally dying from her life. I mean, they're pretty, we were pretty much on the phone praying, wondering it's going to be a week and a half. Well, this woman does not give up praying. She has this group of women at her church that pray. And I believe it or not, her daughter doesn't die. It's like she's raised from the dead. And we're like, okay, great. And then a couple months later, eight months later, she shows up at church. And then she keeps showing up at church, this woman. And you're just like, who? I, I've been there because we know her. We would think, how can I hope? How, how can I even rejoice in hope? God had a vision for this woman's life that I never had. You know, we, we, we are tempted to write people off. God doesn't do that. He has the ability to keep holding on. So when you feel like you're going to give up, it's God's hope you've got to borrow from. You know, that's how we stay constant in prayer. It's Jesus' perseverance. Even though he's being pinned to a cross, he perseveres. And this gets along with the idea of do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. When your fuel runs off of people noticing and affirming you, it'll only get you so far. You know, I, I've been convicted. Um, you know, I, probably me, like many of you, I am addicted to the praise of people. Uh, and it's, it seems like it's so little that I do stuff mindful that I'm doing it for the Lord who loves me. You know, so whether are in the house and we're cleaning and doing stuff, I can mainly think, I want to do a good job so Meg will think I'm a good husband. Or my kids will look and say, you know, oh, look, i got a father that doesn't just sit around and watch TV. Or maybe I do this thing because I want, you know, you all to believe, man, this guy's a good and faithful pastor. All these reasons we do stuff. But, you know, that zeal and that fuel will run out. The thing that keeps you and I going in the times when nobody's looking is this idea that Jesus is looking down on me. And he's smiling, and I'm doing this for him. I'm doing this for the God that loved me. Now that gives us an energy. And it also leads to this last way that mercy transforms love in our community through generousness. And I'll say that through possessions, time, and emotion. Um, you know, he says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. There was a study a few years ago, and this is common knowledge, that people that tend to make less give more than people that make more. You know, so the study was that people that made between 50000 and 80000 gave twice as much as those that made over 200000 Why is that? Well, you know, when you tend to make more, you get more, and you confuse your needs with your wants. And so you're not a needy person anymore. But the other thing, too, is you begin to work off of a meritocracy. The reason I got this stuff is because of my merit. And so you move away from mercy. But someone that's living day to day in the grind and facing trials, they need mercy every day. So it's no surprise that they're really prone to give it freely and give it more often. This is the thing that God is calling you and I to do. And I'll say, you know, again, just to share from my life, um, I can easily do this, but in spiritual terms. When God brings another need in my life, I go, hey, I'm a minister. Listen, I'm doing religious stuff all the time. I'm preaching, I'm meeting with people, I'm counseling with people, I'm praying. 
Don't bring any extra stuff my way, God. I've punched the clock. You know. And it's this, it, there could be this view among Christians going, well, listen, God, I, I've sought to be pure. I've sought to follow you. I've sought to not cheat like my coworker did. I sought not to do this and do that. And what happens is, when he calls us to extra service, we got nothing to give. And we lose zeal. But the mercy of God moves us in a new way to zeal, doesn't it? Because we're not running off of that stuff. We're running off the fact that I cannot believe, I cannot believe God, that from eternity you looked upon this poor sinner that wasn't going to change his mind any which way, and you, you fixed your eye on me, and I became the apple of your eye. And even if I was the only person on the planet, you would have sent your only beloved son to go through hell to have me, that you might forgive me, take my judgment, take my shame, renew me, and then sweep me up into your eternal plans that I may be an adopted son and be a prince in your kingdom, and I might do eternal things. Now that helps you take out the garbage. That helps you move. Generousness is more than money, though. I think the hardest thing for us to give, many of us, is time. And he says hospitality. Show hospitality. Um, hospitality, you know, isn't just I open up my home. It's the fact that I'm there with people. And do I believe that I'm not more important than I am? That I can actually spend time with people? And on top of that, I'm not deluded in this idea that there's always something better out there. I mean, this is part of our delusion, right? We always think there's a better conversation than the one we're having with a person. You know, we're like, this, is a, this was nice, this was nice, this was nice. Okay, let's move on. You know, let's move on to it. There's always a better party. There's always a better... This is why we don't ever do things to the last minute, right? Always a better option. But hospitality is like, no. You being here by God's purpose is the best option for me. I open up my home just like God opened up his house to me. And then emotion. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Mercy produces a sort of love that doesn't just try to listen and solve. Right? But rather it listens and says, let me first enter in my, into your feelings before I suggest a solution. Let me first get to this place where I start to feel what it's like for you in that. And then, you know, all of a sudden you feel your eyes kind of well up and you feel yourself slow down a little bit. And you've invested. You've given emotionally. So this is the sort of love that produces, mercy produces in our community. But let's wrap it up by talking about love from enemies or loving enemies. Verse 17, there's a transition from loving Christ followers to loving enemies that persecute us. Now, let me say this as a little, you know, sort of sidebar because this is a big topic that gets into a lot of questions. Next week we're going to talk about the state, the government, and its role in the lives of evildoers and blah blah blah. So that's one different issue that we're not hitting now. But also, if you have the power to stop evil, you should use it. Because it's not loving to let an evildoer continue in evil, right? If you have the power to stop it. But what this passage is talking about, and you can tell because it's framed, verse 17, repay no, no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. 
And then do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The thing is framed with the idea of the temptation for personal vengeance. That's what he's talking about. I've been listening to a podcast uh, called Detective. And uh, it's, you know, this police chief out, out in Colorado for 26 years or whatever. And he's sort of this no-nonsense guy. You listen to his different, you know, experiences over the years. And he said, people kill for three reasons. Money, sex, and vengeance. He said, that's why they kill. Vengeance is a sneaky thing. Because vengeance can start off really small and then just blow up, right? He tells the story of a guy that got it in his head that one of his friends stole his autographed baseball. I mean, that's something that you and I, right? You're like, man, man, I had had a bunch of people over. Where'd that thing go? I wonder if it's that guy. I don't like that guy. He doesn't like me either. And so, you know, he sort of brings it up to friends and they're like, no, you're crazy. He didn't steal your ball. But it goes on. It festers for a year. It festers for another year. It festers for another year. And he kills the guy. You think, how did that happen? You ever let something fester? Right? Let's not, let's not be... Uh, listen, normal people do that. Right? Quote, unquote, normal people. So there's a danger with vengeance. And it might be the fact that we just replay something over in our heads. Or it might be the words we use, or we gossip on the side to try to get someone that way, or we sabotage their work, or maybe we physically harm them. Uh, there's a movie that's, to me, such a perfect example of this. Uh, it came out, it's one, Barry Levinson, who made three films about Baltimore. Uh, one of the films he made is called Tin Men. And it's this movie about Danny DeVito, Richard Dreyfuss, and they're both aluminum siding salesmen in the 60s. This is what they do, and they both love Cadillacs. And the day one of them gets the Cadillac, pulls out of the lot, the other comes up and bang. And it just creates this thing where they're just vengeance on one another. It's a comedy, but then it gets really sad because one of them thinks, I know how I can really get this guy. I'm going to seduce his wife. And he does. And it's just this picture of vengeance that unrolls in the lives of people. Here's a quote that I read this week, and I thought it was helpful. This comes from Tim Keller's commentary on Romans. Paul says that to repay evil with evil is immediately to lose the battle to evil. The only way to defeat evil is by doing good to the one who's done harm. In other words, if you hate a person who's wronged you, that person has won because you've too closely identified their evil, the evil with the evildoer. The ultimate source of their evil isn't themselves. But you haven't been able to separate the two. And he says the only way to defeat evil is to forgive and love the person, and by that, that we do two things. We stop evil from infecting ourselves, and then we might stop it in them. When we meet, and he talks about this idea of burning coals. It's an image from the book of Proverbs heaping burning coals on someone's head. What in the world does that mean? It means as we show kindness and mercy, it might be that that person turns around, they feel ashamed and they repent. Or by us showing that kindness, we're resisting judgment and we're letting God be the ultimate one. Burning coals is a sign of judgment, that God would be the one that would judge. So you and I, through the mercy of God, and it takes a lot of work, right, especially in those relationships 
I, I've got a couple people in my life that I would love to write off, and I am still struggling forgiving them. And I get in way too many arguments. I don't know if it happens to you, but you know, usually to me it happens in the shower. I've mentioned this before. I don't know why. You know, but I'm just sort of, you're kind of like, and before you know it, you're talking out loud. You're like, all right, slow down here. You know, you're arguing with them, but of course they're not there arguing with you. You've, you've put in their mouth what they're going to say. Oh, yeah, you said that? Why well, say back to you? And then they'll say, and I, you? Oh, yeah? I mean, this is how crazy we get with sin, right? This is what we're like. And so at that point, you have to go, Lord, let me think about my gospel story. Let me think about your mercy in my life. And it's just like pouring water on a flame. Psst. And we kind of calm down a little bit and go, how could I subvert this person with kindness? How could I subvert them with goodness? So Paul says there's no persecution so great that exempts us from living that way. And that's a challenge. So we've hit a lot of things about what it means to be a mercy-made community. A community that's changed in their love. It's a supernatural love. And it's that love that leads people to say, I want to know about this Jesus. I want to know about this God in your life. Let's pray that he might do that for us. Father, you know that we are so in need of your mercy. We thank you that your mercy, you describe it as rich and lavish and it doesn't run out. Thank you, you have the power to make us who we can't make ourselves to be. Would you do that in our community for the sake of your son? In Christ's name, amen.